Yeah, well, a very good morning and a happy new year to you all. Let's try and get the technology functioning. It's traditional, isn't it, at Hogmanay, as probably most of us did, to make a resolution or two for the new year. And it's also traditional that uh, a week or so into the year, many of those resolutions lie in tatters. Now, if you're, if you're like me in that, it must mean that we're going about this business of self-change and personal growth in the wrong way. Socrates is quoted, he's quite a wise bloke, I think. He's quoted as saying, the way to affect change is to concentrate not on opposing the old, but on building the new. Not opposing the old, but building the new. And if he's right, then a, a New Year's resolution to simply give something up is unlikely to work. A few weeks ago, if you remember, we were looking at the three levels of selfhood pictured as three simple circles, one inside the other. Uh, I have was the outside layer. I do came inside that. And only at the center of those two came the I am, who we really are. We saw quite clearly, I think, that the Bible calls us to go on an inward journey, both daily and all our lives long. We have to battle through the superficialities, first of what we have, and then of what we do, if we want to get through to who we really are and meet with God there in that place of reality and intimacy. But if the scripture calls us to an inward journey, it also speaks of an outward force driving out from that center of who we really are. It's only who we are at heart, who we are becoming in Christ, that will actually change our life experience and our interactions with the world. But luckily that heart change is exactly what Jesus came to bring. A new year nowadays, the entertainment media seem to concentrate on, on more, uh, more on the bad things that happened in the preceding year than on the good. I don't know if you noticed that. So many popular heroes have died. So many politicians have let us down. There have been so many natural disasters and man-made ones, etc., etc. And that view um, contemplates the year ahead with uh, a certain degree of cynicism, if not pessimism. But the Judeo-Christian culture of which we are part teaches something completely different, and not in the Monty Python sense. We learn to say, oh, one remembered it, you show how old you are. We learn to look back with gratitude on everything God has done, as we just sang, but also forward with hope to what he's about to do in our future. Now, both those two views can be found in the Bible, whether you realize it or not, and I think for the same reasons. The Ecclesiastes point of view proclaims the supreme uh, pointlessness of everything that we do under the sun. And then we have the Philippians 4.4 view, which we came across a few weeks ago, the exact opposite. Rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to say it again, just to annoy you. Rejoice, he says. He doesn't say, but to annoy you, but he obviously knew he was. And the reason for that, that overflowing hope in the second and for the grim cynicism of the first is really this. Ecclesiastes speaks only of what we do under the sun. But Philippians calls us again and again to lift our vision and concentrate on life, as it were, above the sun, the life we have in the Lord. Now, depending on our experience and character, every new year can look either exhilarating or exhausting, delightful or depressing. And for most of us, that's a repeated pattern, whichever way we are. Whether our default setting is starry-eyed optimism, 
unreasonable pessimism, <laughs> or somewhere in between. Uh, the Bible offers us a genuine hope for the year to come, because a new year is really not a blank canvas at all, as some of us tend to think it is. Whatever details we're going to paint in later, the central theme and structure of this artwork are already there fully developed before we even begin the year. In 2018, as in 2017, the big truths are still true, principally that God is still God. So if you want a title for today's talk, let's call it New Year, Same Lord. If you have a Bible with you, perhaps you'd like to turn straight away to Psalm 23, The Lord's My Shepherd. And just a couple of observations while you're finding it. In a few weeks when we get back to John's Gospel, we'll come across the, the bit where Jesus describes himself as the Good Shepherd. And this psalm probably sprang to mind for many of those who heard him. It's attributed in authorship to one of Jesus' ancestors, King David, who certainly couldn't have foreseen exactly what the Good Shepherd would look like when he came. Unlike us, David could only glimpse the truths he was writing about, as it were, out of the corner of the eye of faith. What he had to see prophetically through his own personal knowledge of God, we can now see both historically as well as relationally. So his insight really is remarkable. And my second observation is that there are over a hundred references to sheep and shepherds in the Old Testament, and a large number of them refer to Israel as the sheep and God as their shepherd. This psalm is one of the earliest of those, and yet nothing written since has so captured the imagination of the millions of readers who've known and loved it ever since it was penned. Psalm 23 simply is the famous one. And apart from its obvious connection to Jesus the Good Shepherd, I think that might be simply because it is so extremely personal and such a good everyday prayer. I think it's unique in the Old Testament in referring to God not as our shepherd or their shepherd, but as my shepherd. David, for all his sins and shortcomings, was a man after God's own heart. And this psalm expresses a loving, close, personal relationship with God, a relationship of trust and faith and safety. Outsiders to the church tend to imagine our walk with God as a subservience based on fear and mechanical obedience to an oppressive imaginary friend. In fact, the life of faith is the precise opposite. Various men and women of God down the centuries have grasped these truths, but David here puts them in a nutshell for us, a memorable, singable, poetic nutshell, a mere six verses with the power to change a life. Let's read them together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Like many a good sermon, or should I say, like many a good sermon, this one is going to be in four parts. First, I want to say a word about the structure of this psalm, and then we're going to walk through it in uh, three poetic stanzas or verses. So number one, the structure. There is no agreement between the most commonly read versions of the Bible on where to put the stanza breaks, where, where one verse ends and one begins. Some present it as a, a sort of seamless garment with no breaks at all. Others break it once, either after verse 3 or verse 4. Can't even agree about that. And others again, twice, after both verse 3 and after verse 4. Now, I'm certainly not scholar enough to say which one is right in terms of the Hebrew poetry of the day. But it certainly makes the most sense to me to follow the ESV and NRSV, which break it after both 3 and 4 into three stanzas. Because verse, verses 1 to 3 contain five he statements. It's all about God and what he does. Then verse 4 leads with two I statements about the poet himself and his experience of God. The reasons for his confidence are really important, but they are secondary. And then verses 5 and 6 are different again. They concentrate at last on you statements. They're voiced not by a sheep, but by a human and they're spoken not about God, but to him. Like vineyard worship, this psalm describes a journey into intimacy with God. And this three stands of view also works pretty well in terms of that inward journey I was speaking about, the three concentric circles. Because the first is about what the author has in God. The Lord is my shepherd. The second is about what he does in his life with God. If I walk, I will not fear and the last is much more, I am. The relationship with God is then clear and confident and fully human. And remarkably, in that place, he's allowing God to serve him, not the other way around. So as we throw ourselves headlong into the new year, or maybe dither on the brink, just dipping a toe in to test the water, I think this psalm helps us to concentrate not on what we have or what we do in the year to come, but on who we're going to be in relation to our God. We often refer, at least in this church, as an old-fashioned phrase now, to the blessings and buffetings of walking with God. And this psalm speaks strongly of that very experience and how we should flourish in the midst of it. In verses 1 to 3, the psalmist takes his eyes resolutely off his present circumstances and concentrates instead on the goodness of God the safety, plenty, and enjoyment he experiences under God's protection. Those are surely the blessings. But then in verse 4, our second stanza, he confronts the fact that life can be terrifyingly bleak. Even in those times, God is faithful and strong and trustworthy, but the valley of the shadow of death is not a happy place, and we can't pretend that it is. These are surely the buffetings. And in the third section, verses 5 and 6, we arrive at what I would call maturity, a full realisation of the whole. 
Here at last, all the blessings of the first stanza are more, uh, and, and more are fully available in the presence of my enemies. The poet has by then experienced the blessings and buffetings, and he's found God to be faithful and loving and powerful. Like Paul in Philippians 4.11, which we read the other week, he has learned to be content in plenty and hardship, in blessing and in persecution. God is equally present with us in both the good times and the grim. When we reach maturity, the feast we relish most is the one that we enjoy with God in the face of the toughest opposition. Now, I think David's very likely telling something of his own story here. Verses 1 to 3 seem to recall his simple life before Goliath, his years as a shepherd boy out in the fields with the sheep. And after that turning point, he then had to live through years of verse 4, years of desperate hardship and danger, living as an outlaw and in fear for his life every single day. Only finally, as king, did he arrive at the place where he experienced God's riches and grace, even in the midst of frequent opposition. So the structure of the psalm alone tells a story before we even get to walk through. But without further ado, let's have a look at number two, the green pastures and the time of blessing. This is verses one to three. For many of us, as we will remember that big wow moment when we first came to Jesus and suddenly realised the goodness of God. Our hearts were filled with spontaneous praise and adoration. Our minds had room for nothing but the wonder and love and forgiveness of God. Whatever the pain and hardship of our lives up to that point, we've now been translated from darkness into light and nothing else seemed to matter. We've got some sobering realities to face later on. But right at that point, we feel, in the words of Job, though he kill me, I'll still trust him. Now, throughout our lives, I hope we recapture that feeling frequently, as these verses, I think, encourage us to do, just as Paul told the Philippians to rejoice. And I'll say it again, rejoice. The first three verses are simply bursting with delight at God's goodness. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord is my shepherd. I'm not going to want for anything. He's my guide through life, my healer, my provider, my protector. And the, the new year is going to be just as good as last year. And he's going to be just as good next year as he was last. As long as I'm following him, I'm never going to lack for anything. That's really good news. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Yeah, the buffeting is going to come soon enough, but for now, let's make sure we're thankful for the blessings. Do we perceive God's care in all the good things that happen to us? Do we sense his love in a good night's sleep or taste his creativity in a glass of wine? Do we hear his voice in the music we love? Do we feel his touch in the sunshine or the frosty chill in short are we thankful people alive to him and just in passing i think there's a particular truth for some of us in this verb he makes me lie down in green pastures whether or not it's strictly accurate i think it's true i've certainly found that if i refuse to lie down and take a rest from time to time of my own accord he has ways of making me lie down some of us i know have this taped perhaps even to the point of refusing to get up. 
But for others, we really need to hear these words. The Good Shepherd's preferred environment for us. Green pastures and still waters. And my late lamented mother, who is um, both a very experienced English teacher and a confirmed Anglican, well, we can't have it all, can we? Uh, she used to hate the hymn, Father, Hear the Prayer We Offer, for this reason. The middle two verses go like this. Does anyone know it? Middle two verses go like this. Not forever in green pastures do we ask our way to be, but the steep and rugged pathway may we tread rejoicingly. Not forever by still waters would we idly rest and stay, but would strike the living fountains from the rocks along our way. She saw in it, perhaps slightly unfairly, she was, she was nothing if not slightly unfair. <laughs> she saw in it a complete rejection of Psalm 23. And I think pastorally she really had a point. Because some of us have misguidedly rewritten our mental coding or allowed other Christians who should know better to do it for us. So the steep and rugged pathway and striking the living fountains from the rocks have become our default settings and we are instinctively and deeply suspicious of green pastures and still waters. But in fact, if you give a sheep a fast-running stream to drink from, the likelihood is that it'll get in and get swept away. Um, there's kind of good things about still waters and green pastures. Our true factory settings how God has designed us to live with him are nothing like that steep and rugged pathway. They consist of just one instruction, follow the good shepherd. And if he leads us to still waters and green pastures, then for goodness sake, enjoy it. Don't run away looking for the first steep and rugged pathway you can find. Number three, he, uh, first three, he, he restores my soul. In other words, he makes it his business to care for all our emotional healing from the, all the hurts that life flings at us. Now, that could mean for some uh, a lifetime of abuse. Or it could be something as trivial as a tough day at work. He is powerful enough to heal the one. He's also loving enough to heal the other. If we let him. The question is, where do we run when it hurts? Do we accept the restoration he offers, including prayer ministry, counselling, medication? Or is our first resort to dull our pain with overwork or TV or chocolate or booze or sex or shopping? Because every good sheep knows it is only the good shepherd who can really restore her soul. Next, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That means he will lead us to do right every single time if we actually follow where he's leading. Precisely because we are his people, he takes a personal interest in leading us. God doesn't want to be like one of those parents who's constantly being shown up by ill-behaved children. We're called by his name. His reputation is on the line in the way that we live. So he will always lead us in the right way. The question is, will we follow so part three, the valley, dark times, verse four. Now we pass from the pleasantly sunlit green pastures into the valley of the shadow of death. Perhaps it's precisely the loneliness of this dark road that moves David to take a step closer to God as he shifts from he to you, from describing the shepherd to addressing him. 
Yet still the primary thought here is not the you but the I. Even here as I walk in the valley, I will fear no evil. That's a decision, by the way. The good shepherd will not desert us. That's a fact. But we still have to trust him if we're not going to be afraid. As with the blessing, so with the buffeting, just as we had consciously to accept the good from God's hand in the first three verses, so now we have to stick close in the times of trial. Speaking for myself, I don't find it that hard to stay close to the shepherd when the, the way goes dark. I'm more likely to stray off and do my own thing when everything in the garden is rosy. But in the deepest, darkest places, there's always the temptation to just pack it all in or simply run to false comforters, ones that can't really help. Uh, most of us will walk this valley at one time or another, and there's only one thing that will sustain us when we do. The knowledge of God that we learned in the green pastures is all we're going to have to sustain us through the darkness of this valley. If we did not fully appreciate him there, it's unlikely we'll look to him when we need him most. There's a rather difficult passage in Isaiah 50 that says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. But now all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go and walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you've set ablaze. This is what you'll receive of my hand. You will lie down in torment. It is reliance on God in the darkness, not in the torchlight of our own resources, that we can be guided safely through this narrow and terrifying ravine. The life of a disciple, as described in the Bible, is not a matter of wonderful victory and light every day of our lives. There's also a place of deep darkness where the most obedient of us will have no light at all. So when someone's going through that, let's not be too quick to offer them our dazzlingly brilliant advice. God is walking with them through this time, and he alone is going to bring them safely out the other side. It's not our place to light some firebrand of our own devising for them to walk by. Our place is simply to walk with them and to pray. The divines of old knew this experience as the dark night of the soul, and they valued it as an essential part of fully knowing God. Fourth and last, the banqueting table and the place of maturity. This is verses 5 and 6. Reading verse 5, I always used to be confused as to why God would want to set this banqueting table for me in the presence of my enemies. Why would that be a good thing? Wouldn't it be better if God just wiped out all my enemies and then set the table? Um, but it's not how life is for us. And as always, the psalmist tells it like it is. I believe feasting in the presence of our enemies describes <coughs> how we should live in this coming year and throughout these days of our wilderness wanderings, while the kingdom of God is still already and not yet. As Christmas reminds us, the kingdom has indeed come into the world in Jesus and his spirit. So we celebrate and feed on his goodness right now. But until he comes again and finally destroys the devil and all his works, 
This is always going to be a feast that we enjoy in the presence of our enemies. An old friend of mine spent years, deliberately as he put it, learning to be a sheep. That's a really good place for every Christian to start. But as Psalm 23 says, it's not supposed to be the end of our story. Up to this point, David has spoken from the standpoint of a sheep. He doesn't actually say, but he might as well. First describing and then addressing the shepherd from that humble point of view. But now the language changes completely. In the last two verses, he speaks unequivocally as a human being. He eats not from green pastures, but at God's table. He drinks not from the still waters, but from an overflowing cup that he's been served by God. His head is not touched with a shepherd's crook, like a sheep, but anointed like that of a priest or king. And he looks forward to living not in a safe field somewhere, but eternally in God's house. I believe this is a point of arrival after the journey from green pastures and through the dark valley. We've travelled from worshipful enjoyment of God's goodness into a dark place where we were barely conscious of his presence. And now we've come out into a different landscape entirely. And more than that, we've arrived transformed by the journey. Now we are constantly aware of the continuing war, but we're still able to enjoy the great feast God has set before us. God's not concerned about our enemies, and neither are we. We become like the great evangelist Smith Wigglesworth, who famously woke up one night to find Satan himself standing at the foot of his bed. He said, oh, it's only you, and went back to sleep. We live surrounded by forces of evil who hate us and would destroy us if they could. Yet we sit down with enjoyment and eat in the Lord's presence. Then right at the end, David goes out on a limb, theologically speaking, in an age where they had very little expectation of any afterlife at all. He says, not only will goodness and mercy follow me all my life long, but above and beyond that, I will live in God's house forever. So he doesn't just have a firm grasp on the now and not yet nature of God's kingdom in this life. He's looking forward with confidence to an eternity of living as God's house guest. One day there won't be any enemies anymore, just God and us. We're just his sheep. Then through the dark road we discovered our humanity and became his honoured guests. And that's where we live right now. But there's still more glory to come and it will be eternal. In 2018 and onwards, I, I pray that this psalm will be a template for how we live today. And day to day. But I hope we'll also remember what it teaches about personal prayer and corporate worship. And just by the way, this is so important to arrive before the service starts, not 10 or 20 minutes into the worship. We begin by praising God unreservedly for what we have in him, for his amazing greatness and goodness. We allow no negative thoughts to cloud our consciousness of his glory and of his love for us. And that's what sets our hearts in the right direction before we begin. Then we honestly bring before him the I do, our actual experience, which probably isn't as great. 
We actively engage with God in the reality of our lives. We resolve to walk with him through every difficulty and hardship. And only through that process do we end up at the I am, the place of intimacy with God, where we can face the world with the attitude of one feasting with him even in the presence of our enemies. Then we can face the worst of that day or week or even the year will throw at us and say with Smith, Smith Wigglesworth, oh, it's only you. So may 2018 be a year of Psalm 23 in the life of this church, in your lives and in mine. Amen. Why don't we stand and I'll pray. Lord God, we thank you for being our shepherd. We thank you that we are your sheep. We thank you that you are here and we are with you. But we thank you that in the end we are to be more than sheep. We are to be transformed by walking with you through blessings and buffetings. And we end as your honoured guests for eternity. Lord, wherever we find ourselves today on that continuum, whether we're in the, in the green pastures or the, the darkest valley, or whether we've already got in some ways to the banqueting table, we offer 2018 to you and ourselves for, for your purposes to receive your love and to bear your image to be your ambassadors in this world. So come Holy Spirit and fill us. You plant the seed of your word in our hearts.